I spent the last 10 years teaching corporate America leadership and teamwork. Now, I've left my 9 to 5 job to help as many people as possible become leaders in their work and personal lives. Some say leaders are born, but I say they're built. This podcast is the beginning of my mission to create change on a massive scale. Join me and follow along as we explore leadership, teamwork, and growth together. My name is Brian Rollo, and this is Lead with Impact. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Lead with Impact. My name is Brian Rollo, and I'm so excited for you to be along for the ride today. We have a great interview lined up that I can't wait for you to hear. We're going to be talking to Ray O'Connor. Ray is a successful author, a former bank CEO and president, and someone with a very vast and interesting biography, as you're going to hear in just a moment. So can't wait to let you hear the conversation with Ray. I do want to say going in, the audio was not as great as it could have been in this interview. That is my fault. I apologize for that. We will learn from that and we will get better. So I hope you can overlook any little audio difficulties and really gain some insight from our conversation with Ray. So let me tell you a little bit about Ray O'Connor. Ray O'Connor has been a newspaper columnist and written articles and opinion pieces published in several newspapers and magazines. His highly acclaimed first book, She Called Him Raymond, A True Story of Love, Loss, Faith, and Healing, is the poignant and powerful story of two ordinary people who led extraordinary lives during the most tumultuous period in history, the Great Depression and World War II. A screenplay adaptation is in development. Ray left his position as a bank CEO and senior officer of a publicly traded company to pursue his writing career. He also served in the past as a special agent with the United States Department of Defense. Ray has a lifetime of involvement with many charitable causes. Among other recognitions, he was named a General Mills Wheaties Everyday Champion, is the recipient of the Distinguished Leadership Award by the National Association for Community Leadership, the American Bar Association's Liberty Bell Award, the Centennial Good Scout Award from the Boy Scouts of America, and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services National Community Action Award. His avocations are wilderness hiking and mountain climbing. And we're going to talk to Ray about all of those things. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. And uh, I think you'll enjoy hearing what he has to say. Welcome, Ray, and thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks, Brian. I appreciate the invitation to uh, talk with you today. So I wanted to go back in history a little bit. There's so much to talk about. We'll be able to get it all in, I'm sure, but so much I'd like to ask you about. But first of all, I would like to go back in time to when you were sitting in, literally in the quarter office of a bank as the president and CEO a great position, highly competitive, a lot of competition to get there. And somewhere in your mind, I think you must have had the thought that I'd like to do something else. And I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through how you got to that point and what making that change was like. Sure. Uh, A long time ago, I read this quote by a writer and philosopher by the name of Martin Buber. And he said, all journeys have destinations of which the traveler is unaware. And I found that it applies to almost everything I've ever done and to probably to a great extent everybody's life is you never really wind up where you think you're going to go. Um, I grew up in New York City. And when you grow up Irish and Catholic in New York City, you're supposed to be one of two things, either a priest or a cop. 
<laughs> and uh, I spent four years in a seminary, figured out that wasn't the life for me. I spent seven years uh, in law enforcement and figured out that career path wasn't for me either. And then I started to develop an interest in the financial markets and finance. And I decided at that point I wanted to be a stockbroker at one of the big investment firms. So I convinced uh, the manager of an office of Shearson Lehman Brothers, which is uh, what Smith Barney was called back in the day, uh, to give me a shot. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get hired, get trained, spend a couple of years in the business. And I, I still wasn't convinced that that was the right path, although, although I knew I was getting closer. And then back in 1986, I picked up the phone and called a gentleman by the name of Mike Massiano, who was the president and CEO of Glens Falls National Bank and its holding company, Arrow Financial Corporation. Uh, we didn't know each other. And I asked him for a few minutes of his time. Uh, which he graciously offered to me. I sat down in his office at the bank and uh, we wound up having a half hour long conversation. And he called the head of uh, human resources at the time, a gentleman by the name of Jerry Billadu. And he said, you know, I like this kid. Find him something to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wound up getting hired by the bank. I worked in the marketing department. And then uh, two years after I started at Clens Falls National Bank, its holding company, Arrow Financial, decided to charter a new bank in the city of Saratoga Springs called the Saratoga National Bank and Trust Company. And uh, living in that community and being involved in that community, uh, same gentleman, Mike Massiano, asked me if I wanted to be one of the founding officers of that bank. And it, it was just a golden opportunity, but again, something I would have never dreamed 10 years earlier uh, that it, it would have happened. Um, you know, I enjoyed working at the bank. Uh, the year that I turned 40, same gentleman, Mike Massiano, to whom I owe a lot, uh, picked me up at the bank one day, and we were headed down to Albany for a meeting of the New York Bankers Association. And, and he, it hit me out of the clear blue when he said to me, how would you like to be president of the bank? And I said, well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah. And I, you know, again, I would have never guessed that at the age of 40, I would have gotten an opportunity uh, to be the president and CEO of a bank. And, and I enjoyed the heck out of that job. Uh, I worked with a lot of wonderful people, terrific customers and clients of the bank. But after um, spending 17 years as president and CEO of the bank, um, a story fell into my lap. And it was, I couldn't resist the opportunity uh, to tell this story and to write a book about it. So at the age of 56, again, another unanticipated, unexpected move, I decided to abandon my career as a bank president and CEO uh, to write this story. Uh, the, the book, as you graciously mentioned, uh, she called him Raymond. I have to imagine making that leap was not easy. No. Uh, you know, the day that I reached that conclusion, uh, you know, while working at the bank, I came home from the office and my wife and I did not have the usual, honey, how was your day at the office talk? <laughs> um, when, I, when I told Mary what I wanted to do, she said, you know, I'm behind you 100%, but I've got to ask you a question. Are you having a midlife crisis? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, I don't think so. But uh, what I did have was a sense of urgency. 
this story that took place during the Great Depression, World War II, I thought anyone who was witness to the accounts of this story had to be in their 80s or 90s. And if I waited and any of those people who might still be alive pass away, what stories, letters, photographs, documents will likely be lost forever? And it was fortunate that I made that move when I did because some of the people who were critical to telling the story were still alive. I was able to track them down and meet them, uh, get their stories, get their photographs and letters and other documents. And in the course of time, it took about five years to write the book, uh, uh, three of the most critical people to telling that story did pass away. And if I had waited, uh, this book would have never gotten written. The story would have never been told. Wow. So the time was right. Yeah, it was perfect. Uh, it was perfect. Um, you know, other family situations, you know, the timing was good. Uh, both of my kids were grown. Their colleges and even graduate schools were finished, paid for. Uh, I had recently paid off uh, the mortgage on my house. So uh, I knew I was going to be taking a precipitous plunge in income initially, but I was well prepared for it because my, my overhead was relatively low. I have to say, honest review, I read She Called Him Raymond shortly after it first came out, but I hadn't picked it up in a couple of years. And preparing for this interview, I went in and read it again, and it is just an amazing story. And I would never think that, A, the person who wrote this came from a financial services background because it's got nothing to do with that. And B, that the person who did this had written many books because it does not read to me, like the work of a first-time author. So congratulations on that. Oh, thanks, Brian. And thank you for your uh, kind words about the book. Um, you know, you're right. I'd never written a book before. And people in the writing community are very generous with their time and their advice. Uh, I spent a summer at the New York State Summer Writers Institute, which is hosted at Skidmore College. And among other mentors, uh, we had three Pulitzer Prize-winning authors uh, at the Writers' Conference uh, that summer, uh, one of which was William Kennedy, uh, who's from Albany. And uh, Honor Moore was another uh, gentleman by the name of Paul Harding, who wrote a book called Tinkers. And when you are fortunate enough to have, uh, to be able to learn in the atmosphere that uh, these men and women and others provide, and, and, Aspiring writers from all over the world come to this uh, particular uh, summer-long uh, series of uh, seminars and workshops. Uh, you learn a lot in a hurry, and and this is no false modesty. Um, no one had more to learn at the New York State Summer Writers Institute that summer than I did. And, and uh, oh, go ahead, Brian. No, I was just going to say. So it speaks to the, I guess, the power of mentorship. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'll share one other story about a particular gentleman. Um, there's a, a gifted uh, writer and author by the name of James Bradley. And if you're not familiar with the work of James Bradley, uh, he's a New York Times and national number one bestselling author of a number of books, uh, two of which are Flyboys, which are stories about World War II pilots and Flags of Our Fathers which is the story of the men who raised the flag on Iwo Jima in that iconic photograph from World War II. And I've always been fond of James Bradley's work. 
And I thought to myself, if there was one person out there who can help me with this story, it's James Bradley. So I set out to make James Bradley's acquaintance. And uh, how I did that under the laws of the state of New York could be characterized as stalking. But I don't think that's important. (laughs) But I did manage to make his acquaintance. And he could not have been more generous with his time and his advice. And there was one particular day, though, where he and I were on the phone for about an hour. And I was probably driving this poor guy crazy talking about the nuances of writing about voice and point of view. And he stops me abruptly and says, Ray, stop talking. He says, do you have a pen and a piece of paper? He said, I want you to write this down. H-I-S-T-O-R-Y. And I said, history? He said, yes, Ray, history. His story, Ray, his story, Ray. Just tell the darn story. Right. So, so two years go by, and the book is finally finished. It's about to be launched. And uh, I send a early copy before the, the launch uh, to James Bradley with a brief note. And I said, dear James, I told the darn story, Ray. And very graciously, uh, after he had a chance to read the book, he sent me uh, an email with an offer to endorse the book. And in his endorsement, uh, James said, uh, Ray O'Connor abandoned his career to search for his namesake, a heroic B-17 pilot who died in World War II. What he found touches the heart and stirs the soul. And, you know, when people look on a bookshelf or, uh, you know, they uh, look online for a book, and they see my name initially, nobody knows who I am. But having that endorsement from somebody like James Bradley appear on the cover of the book, uh, anybody who's familiar with that genre knows that name. And uh, as I said, uh, you know, he and others couldn't have been more generous uh, with their help and advice. Well, that's a, a ama- or an amazing story. And I want to Next, get into She Called Him Raymond itself and let you tell people a little bit about what it is, because we haven't Mm -hmm. gotten to that yet. But I got to ask one follow up question that's listening to your story. Uh, Another lesson I'm taking from this is Mm -hmm. the power of taking the initiative. You called Mike Massiano out of the blue. You called James Bradley out of the blue. And both of those turned out to be maybe life changing events for you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and another, you know, in addition to taking initiative on things, and I don't care what walk of life you're in, you know, whether it's uh, writing, finance, uh, you know, sports, uh, retail business, uh, taking that initiative and taking that risk is, is one of the keys to having success. Valuable lesson. So let's talk a little bit about the book. Mm-hmm. She called him Raymond. Yep. What was this story that was so powerful that you had to step away from your job to tell it? On the occasion of my mother's 80th birthday, uh, we had our entire extended family gathered around her home. And in the course of the day, she pulled me aside and asked me to help her with something. We went into my mom's bedroom. She closed the door. We sat on the edge of her bed and she reached into her dresser drawer and pulled out this old wooden box. And out of that box, pulled out an old envelope and letter. And she asked me to read the letter to her. Uh, My mom had macular degeneration, couldn't read the small print in the letter any longer. When I looked at the return address on the envelope, it said, First Lieutenant C.R. Stevenson Air Corps, a name I wasn't familiar with. And the date that was stamped on the envelope was September 6, 1944. 
which happened to be my mom's 19th birthday. So I asked my mom what it was all about, and she said, read the letter, and I'll tell you afterward. So I read the letter, and it's the sweetest letter you ever read in your life. Uh, The salutation starts, my dearest darling. And the letter was written by my mom's first husband, a gentleman I wasn't familiar with. And they met purely by chance in Central Park in the summer of 1942. My mom grew up in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of Manhattan, desperately poor. And her first husband, whose name was Clarence Raymond Stevenson, was from a poor little town in southern Ohio called Ironton. And they literally ran into each other one day in Central Park in the summer of 1942 when he was training uh, to be a B-17 pilot. And from the moment their eyes first met, they knew their lives would never be the same. So after reading the letter, uh, my mom shares with me this story about her first husband. and. After she tells me about how they met, uh, about their short time together, uh, they eventually married on my mom's 18th birthday. Uh, Raymond, uh, or uh, Lieutenant Stevenson, proposed to her uh, when she was only 16 years old, but my grandmother, my mom's mom, forbid her to get married until she was 18. And he said, I'll wait until your 18th birthday or eternity if I have to, if you'll just say yes. So on my mom's 18th birthday, September 6, 1943, uh, they married in Ohio. And tragically, exactly one year to the day that they married on my mom's 19th birthday and their first wedding anniversary, his B-17 went down in Europe, killing him and almost his entire crew. And so a date that in, you know, one year earlier had marked the happiest in my mom's life was now marred by his death and her despair. And she received that letter from him uh, weeks after his death, and he wrote and sent that letter to her before going off on his last mission, uh, the mission where he lost his life. And my mom read that letter to herself on her birthday every year for 61 straight years until she couldn't read it any longer, and she asked me to read it to her. Uh, And and the book is called, she called him Raymond, because although his first name was Clarence, uh, my mom hated the name Clarence. So she called him by his middle name, uh, Raymond. Uh, Nine years after his death, uh, they had a daughter together, uh, my sister, Anne. Uh, And nine years after uh, Raymond's death, my mom found love again and married my father. And together they had three sons, myself and my two brothers. So after I read this letter to my mom, um, I said to her, I said, why did you ask me to read the letter to you? Uh, why not my sister, Anne, who was their daughter, or one of my brothers? And my mom said, I have another story to tell you. She said, when I was pregnant with you, I said to your father, if I have a boy, what do you think about the name Raymond? And my dad said, oh, you want to name him after my Uncle Ray, who my father was very close with. And my mom said, sure. And then she mm-hmm. told me, she said, you're not named after Pop's Uncle Ray. I wanted to name you Raymond after my Raymond. So there I was at my mom's 80th birthday party and learning that I'm the namesake for this dashing and brave young aviator who gave his life for his country in World War II. My mom and I didn't talk about it much after that day, but a few years later, my dad passed away. And she and I started talking more about her early life and her short time with Raymond. And the more I learned, the better the story got. So as I said before, at the age of 56, I decided to abandon my career uh, as a bank president and CEO. 
to write this story. And it was by far the smartest career move I've ever made. Uh, not only was researching and writing the story uh, important to me, uh, but it, it turned out to be a, a good career move um, as well. Fortunately, the, the book has done well. Uh, I do a lot of public speaking related to the story. And, uh, and it was a, uh, a great gift uh, to my mom, uh, to my sister. And my real goal in doing it was if I could write a story that my mom and our family could be proud of and that Raymond's family could be proud of, uh, I would have figured that my mission was accomplished. That's an amazing story. And I've got so many follow-up questions, which we don't have time for, but uh, let me just ask you a couple about the story itself. Sure. So after you have this conversation with your mom, Mm -hmm. do you go back and tell the rest of your siblings or is it just between the two of you? No, uh, it was just between the two of us. And my mom, in fact, asked me just to keep it between the two of us. And, uh, you know, maybe four years later, um, you know, I made the commitment to do this. And and I got to be honest with you, my mom was not too crazy about me writing a book. She was pretty typical of members of the greatest generation. Didn't talk a whole lot about the past, never complained about anything, never bragged about anything. And uh, it, it took several months uh, for me, and I enlisted the help of my sister uh, to soften mom up. <laughs> and when she eventually gave me the green light, she said, you know, if you get your heart set on writing the story, I'm not getting in your way. But I have to ask you a question. Who would ever want to read a book about me? <laughs> as, as it turns out, a lot of people. A lot of people. So... It's my understanding that a couple of exciting things happened. The book was nominated for a Pulitzer. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah. And also, it's being this potential of it being turned into a movie. I saw you've been working on adaptations. Uh, yeah, there's a screenplay adaptation of the book in the works. Uh, and in, in fact, uh, our talk today is pretty timely. Um, I'm headed down to Atlanta uh, at the beginning of April. Um, to uh, pitch the story uh, at an event down there um, and meeting with some other folks I've become acquainted with in the film industry. Uh, The Atlanta area in the state of Georgia has become a mecca of filmmaking because uh, it is a very film-friendly state and has very generous uh, tax incentives for, Uh uh, for film production. And then uh, a couple of days after I get back from Atlanta, um, headed out to Los Angeles uh, to meet with a couple of folks uh, in the film industry. And the, you know, this is a very long, arduous process. Uh, things move at a glacial pace. But the way I look at it is, you know, they're going to make a film out of somebody's story. Why shouldn't they make one out of Helen and Raymond's story? That's right. And I saw a post, maybe a LinkedIn or an article, that you have been through 27 different versions. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, when, you know, when a story, uh, when any story is adapted from a book uh, for film, some fairly dramatic changes have to take place in the way it's written, in the way the story's told, and the uh, structure of the story. And again, you know, I've, I've had the great fortune of getting a lot of help 
from uh, people who have worked for TriStar Films, Sony Pictures, uh, um, you know, that uh, I've been learning a lot, uh, getting a lot of feedback. Um, I participated in a program uh, called Stowe Story Labs uh, last year that brings screenwriters, directors, producers from all over the world to Stowe, Vermont, of all places, uh, you know, to uh, hone their craft, share their stories. And uh, it was the exposure there that uh, led me to uh, making some contacts and making this trip uh, down to Atlanta uh, next month. So well, I was going to say, when should we have news? Are you hoping for news shortly after that, that a deal be signed, or is it still going to be a long process? Oh, it's still going to be a long process. Still going to be a long process. Uh, yeah, the, it, it's, although it's been worked on for, gosh, probably close to three years now, um, the usual time frame going from concept to screen is typically about seven years. Wow. And, uh, and one of the things I'm hoping doesn't happen is uh, I met a gentleman who uh, works for Disney uh, in screenwriting and production. Uh, this was up at Stowe Story Labs. And he and his team have worked on projects for Disney that have gone four years. They've got the script. They got the talent lined up. Uh, they've you know worked on animation, and then you know somebody higher up the food chain at the company says, you know what, uh, we're not going to do this after all. And you know the the story and all the work behind it gets put up on a shelf. Um, so among my missions is to find uh, the producer and the director who really wants to tell this story. Who's, right. you know, just fallen in love with it. Um, one of the gentlemen I'm going out to uh, see in Los Angeles, uh, I'm hoping is one of those guys. Well, I think that I think it's going to happen because, they, again, this is an amazing story. I can see it may, being an incredible movie. So I'm looking forward to, looking forward to seeing it on the big screen. Yeah, me too, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> so let me sort of wrap it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because I know, know we're running out of time. Let's go back to your, maybe I shouldn't say go back to your days as a leader, because I'm sure in your own way, you're still leading people, even though you don't have a formal uh, team that reports to you, maybe mm-hmm. like you did at the bank. So yeah. in your opinion, what makes a good leader? You know, when I, when I was at the bank, Brian, occasionally I'd hear somebody who was on the staff say, well, I work for Ray O'Connor. And I would always correct them. And I'd say, you know, you don't work for me. We all work together and we work for our customers and our clients and our shareholders. And I, and I, I think one of the uh, keys to whatever success I've had is, uh, you know, letting everybody know and convincing everybody who worked on our team that we really are a team, that no one was more valuable than anybody else. I'll tell you one of the smartest things uh, I did over the years is I always tried to hire people smarter than I am. And that generally was not much of a challenge. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure know, that's not the case. <laughs> but, you know, if, I mean, they may, you know, they may be smarter than me or they may know about some component in this business that they have a greater depth of knowledge of or understanding of than I do. And surrounding yourself with with bright, energetic, well-intentioned people and 
uh, and letting everybody know, you know, that, uh, you know, that the, that while somebody ultimately has to be responsible for making the final decision on something that it's, it's all about the team. It's all about working together and always keeping your focus on the needs of the customers and the clients. And, and if you do that, most everything else just uh, falls into place. I agree 100%. You know, I always told managers, or do tell managers when I work with them, that you've got to realize in many ways they are more important than you because you need them more than they need you. Oh, if, absolutely. I, if I'm sure you were at the bank and you took a day off, things ran okay with, without you. Yeah, but it, if, if for some reason you showed up and everybody else was gone, not much would happen. <laughs> you know, that's a fact. And, you know, especially in, in personal service types of businesses like the banking business, uh, you know, the customer service reps that are on the teller line and the branch managers, uh, you know, your business development people, your marketing people, they're the face of the company. They're the ones that have 90% of the contact uh, with the customers. And, and that's what carries your business on a day-to-day basis and over the long haul. Yeah, I agree 100%. So I want to throw in uh, just one question about what we mentioned in the intro. Your avocations are hiking and mountain climbing. Can you talk to me a little bit about why you like those so much? Uh, you know, I, I do hiking and climbing um, as much for the mind and the soul as I do for the body. Uh, I, I've always been, you know, into fitness and, uh, I used to do a lot of running, uh, but, and, you know, as I got older, it, it takes its toll, uh, on your body and on your joints. And that's probably about a dozen years ago. Now, uh, I joined the Adirondack mountain club, started doing some hiking seriously, uh, met a couple of folks through hiking. Uh, one of which, uh, Joe Murphy, a close buddy of mine, uh, who's also 30 years younger than I am. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we put together lists of mountains to climb. Uh, we started with the 46 high peaks in the Adirondacks, uh, the Northeast 115, which is the 115 tallest mountains in the Northeastern United States. And uh, we, we're now working on the New England 100 highest and a couple of other lists. But uh, in addition to keeping you fit, getting out into the wilderness, and unplugging from you know the kinds of things that you and I are doing here today uh, is uh, extraordinarily uh, it's it's transformational uh, for me. Um, I went out this past Monday again. My buddy Joe Murphy and I spent um, a full day up in the Adirondacks, knocking off a couple of mountains, and the uh, the euphoria that sets in for me and the carryover. Uh, from it is is just remarkable uh people need to spend more time out in nature and out in the woods there's nothing like it to sort of reset you i found i don't do it, do it nearly as much as you do but it's valuable time yeah it, it, brian it's like magic out there isn't it it is it is yeah and now i believe too wasn't kilimanjaro on that list yeah back in 2012 uh two of my hiking friends and i went over to tanzania and climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, in fact, I started another book that's kind of been pushed to the side uh, because of the uh, screenplay interest, and she called him Raymond. But the guide who took us to Mount Kilimanjaro has a story that you could not make up, 
in your wildest imagination. And really? yeah, and he's a native of Tanzania. Uh, he lives in the Catskills with his wife and his five kids now. Uh, his name is Protus Mayunga. And he and I have become friends. Uh, we stay in regular contact. And as I said, uh, the man has a remarkable story. Well, we look look forward to hearing that somewhere down the somewhere down the line. We are running towards the end of our time, so I'd just like to ask people uh, or ask you, where can people find you online? Uh, let's see. There's a website. Uh, she called him Raymond dot com uh, related to the book. Um, people are free to contact me by email. Uh, Ray O'Connor, R A Y O C O N O R, uh, the number five at gmail dot com. Uh, there is a Facebook page uh, for uh, the book. She called him Raymond, and I'm on you know all the social media, uh, personally Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, and uh, folks can find me there as well. I love I love talking about stories, um, talking about the book. Uh, so I encourage folks to reach out to me. I encourage that as well, and I also encourage people go buy the book. Read it. You will not be disappointed. It is a, it's a fantastic read in so many ways. Well, thank you for being with us today. There's so much I wish we had time to talk about. Maybe another time we'll pick up on some other stories because you've got a long career and, and so much more we could have talked about. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Brian. I, I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to, uh, to tell some stories. And so that was our conversation with Ray O'Connor. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. I learned a lot about taking initiative. I learned about mentorship and I really enjoyed how he defined leadership too. So that really resonated with me and I hope it, it, hope it did for you too. My name is Brian Rollo. You can find me at www.brianrollo.com. You can email me at brian at brianrollo.com. If you're finding us on iTunes and you like what you heard, I would appreciate you giving us a review and a rating that would help tremendously. Oh, and click that subscribe button. We've got great information coming for you in the future. I've already got several more interviews lined up with some really fascinating people that I can't wait to talk to. And we'll be talking more about leadership, teamwork, workplace culture, all of that as well. So I appreciate you being along for the ride and I will talk to you tomorrow. Go out there and have an impact. <laughs>